0: So there's this song by the band Gunger called The Fall, and it goes like this, at least part of it. The fall, the fall, oh God, the fall of man. The fruit is found in every eye and every hand. Nothing, there is nothing yet in truest form. We walk like ghosts upon the earth. The ground it groans. And I, those lyrics have always haunted me, if you will. It's, the aspect of we walk on the earth like ghosts, just something about that lyrical line resonates with my experience. Nothing, there is nothing yet in its truest form. We walk like ghosts upon the earth. What, you, what, what that saying is, is that everything we see, no matter how wonderful, glorious, or dumb... None of it is yet to reaching, it has not yet reached its fullest potential. Because the glory of God has not yet covered the earth as the waters cover the sea. To quote Habakkuk 2 verse 14. That there will be a day when the glory of God covers every inch of the universe but it has not yet come. So everything is, as the saying goes, a shadow of its future self rather than its former self. Everything's a shadow of its future self. We haven't quite yet seen everything in its truest form and we ourselves walk like ghosts upon the earth. And the reason I resonate with that is because I know, I know there's something not right with me yet. I know I was meant to be better than I am. Don't you? I think we all recognize, most Jesus followers recognize, that we're actually, quite frankly, losers of our true selves. We haven't quite reached that. Now, other people think that they're all that, and that's great. That's their religion. But <laughs> part of what makes a Jesus follower is what Jesus said, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's this recognition that we, that you know, you, know, you may get... Tied up with the whole ghost thing. It's just a simile. It's just an analogy. You can get past that, Uh, but the feeling that like we're hollow, right? Almost see through. Like we're wisps, and there's something more substantial. There's something more real. There's something that hasn't quite fulfilled. Hollow. So we hunger. We want things. We grab for things. We desire things, and often it is that's just that. It's things. Because things are easy. Things are right within grab. We're half-hearted creatures, C.S. Lewis says. Half-hearted creatures. Knowing that we are ravenous for something, but too lazy to go for the thing. So what we're going to see in Ezekiel chapters 8-11 through is his second vision. His first vision we already saw. The weird four-faced creatures... And the glory of God, which he couldn't describe. It was sort of like the likeness of, the form of, the glory of God. He used all these words to say, I'm not even getting close to what was really seen. And this second vision, he's going to open with the same vision, the same weird creatures, the presence of God, but then it's going to take us somewhere. And all of this is going to center around the glory, the glory of Yahweh, God of Israel. So as we go into it, um, Let's look at what this glory of God is up to. In chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month. So this is about a year after his first vision. You are called into the prophetic ministry with this mind-blowing vision in which you cannot move for seven days. Then your voice is taken away for a year. (laughs) That's how you start your ministry. And then God just doesn't show you anything else. Like, what? I thought it was going to be a great prophet. whole year goes by. Finally, the second vision comes. So take heart, dear friends, if you haven't felt like God is really <laughs> very present around you. Ezekiel, two visions in two years, and you're a prophet? <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes God lets it count when it comes. And so he's sitting in his house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, he says. And the hand of the Lord Yahweh fell upon me there. So they're in his home. The elders who had come from Jerusalem to Babylon with him as they were captured. They're all having a huddle. We don't know what they're doing. Are they fasting, praying, reading over the Torah? We don't know, but they're together. And the hand of Yahweh comes upon Ezekiel. It says in verse 2, Then I looked and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire and above his waist was something like here we go again right he's like grasping for imagery something like the appearance of brightness like gleaming metal he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head I didn't do it I didn't do it <laughs> you can just see God's grabbing you by the lock of your head It's like what your mom did when she's really mad right I didn't do it. Oh, it's God. And the spirit lifted me by the lock of my head between heaven and earth or earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north where the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there, like the vision I saw in the valley, or like we had already read in chapter 1, that same vision. Okay, he's in Babylon. God grabs him by the hair, at least this is how he's trying to describe it, the form of something like a hand, and now he's taken to Jerusalem, a thousand miles away He's not physically transported, alright? The elders would have lost their minds if if Ezekiel had suddenly disappeared in their midst. He's still there with them, but in his spirit, in his prayerful meditation, whatever he's doing, God is giving him a vision. He's taking him to Jerusalem, so it's almost like an out-of-body experience where God is taking him through a tour of Jerusalem itself so in verse 5 oh by the way this image of jealousy you saw in verse 3 takes him to the north gate to the temple um, this image of jealousy is probably the Asherah if you remember from way back in the judges and such all the idols Israel fall in love with this is the female consort of Baal the dreaded Baal God so this is a typically it's a sex religion and so this image of jealousy is there now verse 5 he said to me Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. Do you see what they're doing? They're trying to drive me out. But you will see still greater abominations. Or you're going to see worse yet. You think this is bad? So he comes up to the temple. The very first gate he comes up to, there's this image of the Asherah, a fertility goddess. And God's like, they're going to drive me out of here. This is not good. And Jeremiah is like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? And then God's like, that's just the beginning, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Let's go further. So, that's the first. There's going to be a few more. And as we progress, it's not entirely clear where Ezekiel is in the temple. He doesn't quite give us those details, but it's clear he's getting closer and closer into the temple. Okay? So, each phase is going to be closer to the Holy of Holies, but he never quite gets there. But, so, we're going to go toward realms of thing- into realms that should be designated solely to God. So, we're starting at the gate the outside gate. Now in verse seven, he brought me to the entrance of the court. So now he's in the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in, see the vile abominations that are committing here, that they are committing here. You almost get the sense, don't you? That Ezekiel is, like, in a wild animal documentary, and and God is, like, guiding him as, like, you know, with like, shh, we're coming up on something really terrible here. I can't do the Australian accent, but that would be great if I could. And you can imagine it, like, yeah, crikey, there's a crocodile here, something like that. So, uh, in verse 10... So I went in and saw and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel and before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jeozaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. These are the censers that they swung before God when they were making offerings, and even on the Day of Atonement when they went to the Holy of Holies, and now they're swinging these censers before a wall in a hole inside of the temple court where they have engraved on the wall images of pagan gods and goddesses and, you know, creeping things of creation. They're they're just totally going pagan here. And in verse 11, we just did that one, verse 12, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, Yahweh does not see us, Yahweh has forsaken the land he said to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. The worst is yet to come. So verse 14, then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of Yahweh. So now we're getting to the temple building, right? We're coming up to it. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. And they, and then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. Tammuz is, um, is the, uh, the female goddess of Babylon. Just a, a really big, uh, one of the really high ranking gods of the Babylonians. So here there are Jewish women weeping for her. Not good. And now in verse 16. We come to the worst of the worst. He brought me into the inner court of the house of Yahweh. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of Yahweh, between the porch and the altar, so now we're where they make sacrifices, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of Yahweh, and their faces toward the east, worshipping the sun toward the east. Isn't that just such a picture? Like, not only are they worshiping the sun, but their backs are turned toward God's glory in the temple. It's almost like they've just turned their back on him. And we're not just going to worship the sun with God. we're, We're choosing the sun over God. And so in verse 17, then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though every cry and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So what's God going to do about this? Ezekiel sees now four abominations, and each are getting worse as he gets closer to the temple. What's God going to do about this? Give him guest rooms? Oh yeah, the gods can stay here as long as I get the lion's share of the worship. No, in chapter 9, Ezekiel sees more. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. So six assassins are coming in. This is encouraging. And with them, a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested on the threshold of the house. Ooh, the glory of God is now on the move. It's moved, shifted. Stuff is about to happen. So now these six hitmen come in and they are going to be sent to execute everyone in Jerusalem. Except for this one guy, the scribe, wearing the linen and he's got the writing tools, he is going to be sent first to go put a mark on the foreheads of those who have felt sorrow over what's happening in the temple. And anyone who has the mark, they will not be destroyed by these six hitmen. Then he's going to unleash them, and there will be some punishment. Does that not sound interesting? The mark? It's almost the reverse of Revelation, where the Antichrist is going to give his mark to those, and then kill the rest. And God will also, in Revelation, seal his 144,000, and protect them. And we have a precursor here. So this goes on. How literal this is, we don't know. Is this a symbol of Babylon coming? The six hitmen come from the north. That's where Babylon is situated relative to Jerusalem. So maybe Jeremiah or Ezekiel is just simply seeing that um, this is symbolic of the judgment to come through the Babylonians. Or are there six hitmen? Um, this is what he's seeing. This is what he's relating. So now in chapter 10, with this done, we're going to see The glory of God, depart. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. Okay. So you may remember, there's the cherubim, there's four of them, God's throne is on top of them, and beneath or with them are the the wheels within the wheels, right? This, is, this strange thing to try to visualize, but it shows us God's dynamic movement, he's not tied down anywhere, he's got multiple faces that we relate to him with, and so he's seeing this whole thing again, right? This vision of God, and now the scribe that marked all of the Jews on the forehead, uh, he is now going to take coal from within. But we see now God is going to start to move so in verse 3 we see now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house that's the temple when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court remember how moses built the tabernacle in exodus 40 and when he finished building it the the cloud came down and filled the tabernacle we see and also when solomon built the temple later the more permanent rendition of the tabernacle, uh, the cloud of Yahweh came and filled that as well. The cloud of Yahweh's here again, but it's not because he's filling the house. It's reversing what was seen when Moses and Solomon built their sanctuaries. The cloud's gathering because it's about to depart. So in verse 4, the glory of Yahweh went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. Uh Oh. Now look at verse 18, chapter 10, verse 18. Then the glory of Yahweh went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of Yahweh. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Okay, so let's recap. What is he seeing in chapter 10? He's seeing the cloud appears. Yahweh has moved from the Holy of Holies to the entrance of the temple building. Now, in verse 18, we see that he's moving from the entrance of the temple building to the entrance of the gate of the temple court. So that entire mound that you see today in Israel, where the, the Dome of the Rock is, the mosque, that whole court, there's an eastern gate that is presently sealed off. That faces the Mount of Olives. Uh, that would have been the gate that people would have entered into Jerusalem through to get to the temple, um, especially pilgrims. This is the place where God's glory now is. It's about to leave the temple for good. It's right at the eastern entrance. And then, if you want to go forward to chapter 11, verse 22, the third and final stage of his departure happens. 11 verse, 30, verse 22. Don't worry, I'll read it for you. Then <laughs> the cherub the cherubim I think that was my father-in-law, by the way. (laughs) 11.22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And then, unfortunately, Ezekiel's vision has to end. the Spirit brought him back to the room where he was with the elders. But that's the final thing he sees, is that the glory of Yahweh is now... Okay, so let's recap, right? The glory of Yahweh would sit in the Holy of Holies, in the temple building itself. A special room where nobody could enter, except the high priest on that one day of the year, right? Called the Day of Atonement. So, very sacred place. Nobody's allowed there. Well, the glory of Yahweh is now moved... To the entrance of the temple, step one. Then he's moved to the entrance of the courts of the temple courtyard, step two. And now in this final step we see, Ezekiel sees the glory is moved completely to the mountains east of the temple. This is the Mount of Olives where we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, It would be the place where he would have come down. Uh, on his pilgrimage, and when they were doing the whole Hosanna thing with the donkey, it would have been on this mountain. So now the glory of God has gone to this hill. And presumably it goes up and over and bye-bye. It's gone. Never to return in the Old Testament. Never to return. Interestingly, when we see Ezra later, right, some... Hundred-ish years from now, Ezra is going to come back to the land of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple that was destroyed, and Nehemiah is going to build the city walls around it, but we have no record of the cloud and presence and glory of Yahweh returning to it. It's just there. But as far as the biblical story goes, his, his glory is still on the east side of the mountains. Gone. This is a tragic vision Ezekiel's seeing the glory of Yahweh departing from Israel this is all language in a way the glory like you know every time you hear the word glory I have no idea what comes into your mind glory is one of those like words that are beyond reach it seems just like it's like oh but we don't touch it kind of thing glory belongs to God and usually we mean that give him credit or give him praise but like then we talk about the glory of God what is the glory is it just this bright light Ooh, the flashlight went away. Big deal. No, it's not like that. Here's, here's what glory is in the Hebrew. It's kavod. Kavod. And this word deals with weight or substance. Weight or substance. So when you talk about the glory of Yahweh, you're talking about the weight of Yahweh, the substance of Yahweh, the wholeness or the fullness of Yahweh, the entirety of Yahweh. And by calling it the glory, the weight, the substance, it's as if in a world that is still coming to its truest form, because of the fall, it isn't at its truest form, yet there is in the glory of Yahweh that which everything was meant to be, in its fullest substance, with its truest weight, with its real, solid life. That's what the glory is the glory of Yahweh, the weight or the substance. Um, if you heard the Snow Sunday messages when we did the Lord's Prayer, uh, you will have heard me talk about, what, what does it mean we pray, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be thy name? What, like, what is that? And I even looked it up in the dictionary. It said obsolete. <laughs> the word hallowed is obsolete in our language. And yeah, last time I used it was when I prayed the Lord's Prayer. Like, What does that even mean? Well, the, the the way it helps me to think is that when you say hallowed be thy name you're, you're trying to give glory to his name and, and before I even connected the word glory with being weight substance I always thought that to hallow it is the opposite of to hollow it see to hollow his name would be to take the substance out of it so you have the name of God with no, no, nothing really there. It's just a shell. It's just a name. It's just a religious form we put on. But to hallow his name is to allow the substance, the weight, the glory, the entirety of who he is to be present there. Hallowed be your name. So it's the opposite of to, to hallow his name. It's to put that stuff back in. That's what we have here with the glory of God. And it has departed From Israel, so now they're left to their own vain desires. But good news, friends! By the time we're at the end of Ezekiel, he's going to have visions of this same glory returning to some future end day temple. So we know that the story is not going to end here. Furthermore, you know what's so great about the upcoming Palm Sunday? You probably connected these dots. Jesus rides on the donkey over the very hill that the glory departed over, and he's coming back over the hill. And where does he go right into? It's through the eastern gate into the temple. And so here in the Gospels, we have the vision of the glory of God returning in the unexpected human form of Jesus. And John even said, in John 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory of God returned to us with Jesus on the donkey. And of course, the glory of God didn't stay there. The glory of God went on the cross, which surprised us. The glory of God Well, you can't really kill the true substance of the universe, so it came back to life, and then the glory of God ascended to God, and then that glory was given to his followers through the Holy Spirit. And now the glory in this story has gone from departing from the temple to returning to it to now residing in the new temples that are called the people of God. The Holy Spirit resides in us, and that's where the glory has gone. Now, Ezekiel foresaw this. He foresaw that the departure of the glory here would one day mean that the glory would become part of you and I. He saw that before he knew about Christ. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 14. In the midst of this tragic story, right before the third and final stage of the departure of Yahweh's glory over the, the Mount of Olives, he says this. And the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, all those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go far from Yahweh, to us this land is given for possession Therefore say, thus says the Lord Yahweh, though I remove them far off among the nations and though I scatter them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord Yahweh, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. I'm scattering them. I'm done. I'm leaving this place. They're going to be scattered. But I will bring them back. And when they come back, they will clean house. It will finally be as it was supposed to be. Verse 19, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove from the heart, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I'm going to give them a new heart. Now, his language is slightly different from Jeremiah's, but Jeremiah said the same thing. Both of them had the tagline, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's what God said when he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. He said, my whole goal is so that I will be their God, and they will be my people. Of course, they didn't do a very good job at that. But Ezekiel's saying, they will one day. It will be true. And by the way, when you get to Revelation chapter 21, it says that God is finally dwelling with men, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. It's going to happen. Where there's going to be this faithful relationship between him and his people, between us and him. If you want to, we should probably refresh our memories. If you want to go back to Jeremiah chapter 31, we've already seen this promise. But it's in slightly different wording. Jeremiah 31, frequently quoted in the New Testament. In 31, verse 31, it's very easy to remember. And I'll start reading while some of you catch up. 31, 31, behold. The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See? So where Ezekiel talks about the heart of stone Jeremiah was saying they didn't obey my commandments. Then Ezekiel says, I'll give them a heart of flesh, something moldable. Jeremiah is saying, I will put my law within their hearts. They're saying the same thing. And then finally, I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Well, I'm going through all that because now what I need you to do is to go to second chronicle or Corinthians, second Corinthians, because our lovely apostle Paul picks this right up. So lest you think that this is just some future promise, you're wrong. It's happening now. Although it will be fulfilled in the future too. So I want you guys to hear now this whole concept of writing his law in our hearts and hearts of stone and flesh. You can only write, yeah. So listen to Paul picking up on these themes in Second Corinthians chapter 3. Remember, the glory is departed, it's returned, and now it's residing in us. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Paul saying, Look, I know you personally. So I don't need letters that say, hey, listen to Paul, he's a good guy. Because that's what apostles would do is they would go to other churches. If you didn't know them, there would be a letter saying, hey, the apostle Paul likes him, listen to him. Paul's like, do I really need a letter for you guys? I birthed you, you're my church. That's what. That's the context there. Now verse two, it says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show... That you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Or, the Greek can literally read, on tablets of human flesh. So the hearts of flesh are there. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of a, Jeremiah's language, new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For this letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see what's going on here. The glory is departed, but, but Ezekiel and Jeremiah both say, yes, but God's spirit will live within us. That's going to be the difference. Amen. He called it a heart of flesh. He called it the law within their hearts. And Paul just takes both those images and says, it's the spirit. That's what it is. The spirit coming within the human is the promise. And so now the glory resides in us. No, it's not a stretch. Look what Paul says later in chapter 3. Verse 16, verse 17, 3, verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The spirit coming to the human being is the return of the glory of Yahweh to his people. So, the weight of glory is not just that it has substance. It's the awful reality, and by awful I mean in its literal sense, full of awe, that that glory lives within us. And then, while we're here, just go one more. Chapter 4, verse 17. 4, verse 17. For this, this, by the second Corinthians still, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We're waiting for an eternal weight of glory. Is that not just a great phrase? Momentary light afflictions compared to an eternal weight of glory. And then back to 3:18 with unfailed face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. All this to say, the glory of God is not just God's. The glory is going to be shared with us. And that if you want to read C.S. Lewis's essay the weight of glory is one of the things he marvels at in it is that it blew his mind and mine too, as I was reading it, that God is going to share that glory with us? What what, what can that possibly mean? Well, to give glory is to give credit, to give praise to something, to give pleasure. God is going to give that to us. Colossians chapter 3 says that we will return with him in glory. We are part of that glory, which means that God is going to put his arm around you and say, I am pleased with you. You deserve my admiration. This is that yearning which every human has had to hear from their father. And we're going to hear from the great father, the father of the universe. As he's going to say, you are enough. I'm pleased with you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. All of the praise you thought you were pushing onto me, I'm just going to give it back to you and that's what Paul says here too in, verse, in 2 Corinthians 3.18 we're beholding the glory of God it actually is referring to a mirror reflecting as we're beholding we are seeing him and we're seeing ourselves in him because we are in Christ this is the heavy weight of glory is that he is going to give it all back to us as he raises us up with him but more than that is that we are not only going to receive glory from God. But that we are going to become. We're going to enter into and share in that beauty itself. Right? There's this thing where we see something gorgeous. Something beautiful. Something something that's just. It's it. it we call it glory. And we, we looking at it is great. But, but when there's something that we want to be united with it. We want to enter into it. Pass into it. Let it become part of us. We desire and yearn for that, and that will happen. That will happen, that we will take on the glory of God. He's going to transform us to look like him. We're not just going to see him. We're not just going to have visions of him. He's not just going to say, well done, and pat us on the back, but he's going to share his essence, the weight, the substance of his glory, and pass it on to us so that we're no longer ghosts walking on the earth, Nothing yet in its truest form. No, you will then finally be in your truest form because the very substance, the very hallowed wholeness of God will become ours. That's the new body that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. (laughs) Well, that is what the Bible's telling us. But here's the reality, friends. Romans chapter 1, verse 23 Romans 3 verse 23, you know what I'm getting at, don't you? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." That's Romans 3:23, "We've fallen short of this glory." Yeah, I'm looking at you and I know that. In chapter one, Romans 1: 123 gives us more of a specific example of how we've fallen short of the glory. It says in Romans: 123, "We exchanged." The glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Oh Lord. We exchanged the weight of glory for these puny little animals. No wonder we feel like ghosts. We feel incomplete. We have these yearnings that are unfulfilled. It's because we have exchanged the truest substance that will complete us and make us whole, and we have fallen short of it, because we said, that is worldly grand, let's settle for this. The best way to look at falling short of the glory of God is to look at it and say, we have settled for less than the glory of God. We have settled. We are settlers for less than who God is. That's our tragic flaw. And this is where I'm going to read to you. A wonderful quote from Lewis in his titled message. Catch this, it's deep. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, what is he saying? if we considered everything we just walked through, that glory is to be shared with us and we're to enter into and inherit the very substance and weight of God himself, if we're to understand what the Bible is telling us, if we're to actually grasp those unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of those rewards promised to us in the Gospels, he then continues, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak you have no idea how liberating that line is for me. That as I grow up, you know, as a teenager with youth pastors, like, what is the message that's usually given to youth? It's stop desiring that. Turn off your your yearnings and turn that part of yourself, right? We're constantly telling them that, like, who they are and what they want is bad. So we are giving unintentionally this message to humanity, and we're growing up with it that my desires are bad. My desires will lead me astray. They can, don't get me wrong, they obviously can. But but as we finish this concept, I think you'll see that Lewis is right, that God finds our desires too weak, not too strong. Because what is actually happening is we are lusting for this or that. He's going to use the example of drink, sex, or ambition. But by doing that, we're actually falling short we're settling for less than what god is trying to offer us because we're lazy we want to grab at the easiest thing that will satisfy us without concern for is this temporary fulfillment or is this an eternal way of glory so he goes on our lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Right. We are playing with mud pies in the slum because we do not grasp the promises that God has been inviting us into. He's offering you that full paid, all inclusive cruise. And we're like, whatever that is, check out my mud pie. It's even got a worm in it. Extra protein. He fi- this, the quote ends with this last line. We are far too easily pleased therefore we've fallen short the glory of God we've settled we said oh this is good enough and the whole time God is going no you don't get it you don't get my glory you haven't seen it you haven't felt it You're, why settle why settle the, the irony is that when we see in Ezekiel as, as he's taken in that vision through the stages through the temple where there are the different idolatries going on. You notice that in that, there's a progression as he's getting closer to the temple, he's in the courtyard, then he's at the altar. But they never go all the way to the Holy of Holies. They never go all the way. Because here's the truth. Every idol, every created thing, everything we put our hope in that is not the eternal way of the glory of God will never get us all the way. It will always fall short. The challenge for us is where are we settling? Where are we settling? We are half-hearted creatures. We're like, yay, I I accepted Christ at a Billy Graham crusade, at the Harvest Crusade, at a Bible study, I said the prayer. I did it! And partially, I I blame our expectation that nothing can get fixed until Christ comes back. No, you can. You can get fixed. You can let his glory fill you to the utmost. But for some reason, we think it just, I'm just supposed to wait. Not that kind of weight of glory. Don't wait for the glory, except now the weight of glory. The substance of, let, it, let the realness of God thrill you, fill you. To where you're going you're to stop and think, why have I been dreaming about just saving up enough so that I can get that? Or I've been debating in my mind forever if I should subscribe to Hulu or Netflix. The things that occupy our mind are settling far short of what God is offering. None of those things are wrong. And even the things that Lewis mentioned, ambition, sex, drink, these things are not wrong. But when they stop us from going to the glory of God, when they cause us to settle, that's when they become wrong. Everything that the pagans worshipped, their idols, and the things that Ezekiel saw, none of those things were inherently wrong in and of themselves. If they were worshipping a panther, is a panther evil. The thing that is wrong in the idols is that they prohibit the people from getting past them. They cause us to settle. That's when the created order becomes wrong. God is not looking at you saying, whoa, turn off your desire machine. I didn't make you to dream. I didn't make you to want stuff. No, he's looking at it saying, you think that's it, what you're desiring? You haven't even tapped into the full desire you have. You're living like a half-hearted creature. Wake up to who I made you to be. That's the invitation. So yes, the glory left Israel. It returned in Christ so that he can then disperse it to reside in us. And friends, this has some huge implications. Are you a settler or are you going to let the glory of God fill you like the cloud fills the temple? And here's the other challenging thing is that when I look at you, (laughs) there is the infinite potential of God's glory. You are one day going to become a creature as glorious as he or as hideous as the devil. We've never shook hands with a mere mortal. We're all destined on an eternal track either toward the eternal way to glory or the eternal absence of glory. Wow. So, when Ken gives me a hard time at the men's breakfast, remember that. (laughs) Actually, I was, yeah, I need to remember that as he does that, I've only seen the ghost of who he will be. And what if we started treating each other with the full weight and substance that we will receive? So, I don't want you guys to desire less. I think we just need to desire what's real. Desire deeper. Desire deeper. Like, let those desires have them. Tap into, what am I yearning for? And don't stop for, oh, it was in and out. When will they move up here? Like, that's not the desire. It may hit the spot for a moment, but like, every desire and yearning we have we need to go deeper and say what am i really longing for and to simply say as people do all the time it's god it's god it's jesus like those sunday school answers are right but they're not actually helping me get anywhere it's like it doesn't help me when i'm yearning for something and someone's like oh it's god you're yearning for. I'm like okay what do i do with that um we know that answer but it's to actually look within ourselves and see, okay, this yearning's going where and, and, and maybe this ambition to climb a position at work or to get um more stuff or whatever our ambitions are, uh, maybe that God's actually wanting me to use that ambition to start something for him that will help other people experience his realness. See, we're we're settling, thinking my ambition is that because it's the first thing on my radar. God's like, yeah, well... Keep going. So we need to look within at our desires and see deeper. What is the root of these desires? Where does God want my desire to continue to go? Let us not fall short of the weight and the substance of God. Let us keep going deeper. So your desires are good. They're only wrong when they stop short. So... Don't put the reins on them. Don't put the lasso on them. Say, all right, let's go. Let the Spirit of God give me wings and dive in to the desires he's put in my heart. Lord, it's been said that you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you.